Lord, we thank you for the word of, that you have given us. God, I thank you as we're on this journey through the word, through the story, God, that you are revealing more and more of yourself to us. God, that we are grabbing hold of that truth, that your, your plan from the beginning of time, from the first sin, is to been restore mankind to relationship with you. Lord, we rejoice in knowing that there is that unshakable love that you have for us as your children. God, I pray today as we continue to look into the story, we are, we are encouraged by that truth, but we are also challenged. God, we are challenged by the way we see your people have turned away from you in so many ways throughout the centuries. God, that we would learn so that we would not be a people like that. Father, that you would receive glory and honor through our lives, that we would be that testimony, that light that you've called us to be. Ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, throughout our history as a nation, there's been a lot of different wars, a lot of different battles, and oftentimes... In a lot of these different wars, there's become this, this kind of this rally, rallying famous war cry that, that the people have embraced. Uh, most of these, some of these I'm going to mention, I'm just going to mention a few. I, I'm sure that an awful lot of you, as soon as I, I say the phrase, you're going to go, oh yeah, I remember that one. Starting with, remember the Alamo. Remember that chant. Remember the Alamo during the, the, the battles that were taking place with Mexico and the, the territory and, and the state we now call Texas. Remember the Alamo was this rallying cry. Another one during the Spanish-American War, maybe not quite as famous, but remember the Maine. How many of you remember, remember the Maine? Maine wasn't a state, it was a ship that was sunk that got us into this war. A little bit more recent, I'm guessing most of us remember this, Remember Pearl Harbor, the rallying cry on that, that date when Japan attacked on a Sunday morning and over 2,000 Americans were killed and started a world war, or getting us into a world war. So going back in our history, there's, there's a number of them, and, and, and probably the first one, I'm guessing, is one that you don't know. And I'm guessing if you do know it, you don't even know where it came from. And that's going back to the American Revolution. At the time of the American Revolution, obviously, we know there was things going on that the colonies were upset with what King George and, and, and Britain was doing. The, the, the freedoms that they were taking away, the things that they were demanding of the United States or the colonies at that time. And the battle cry of that American Revolution became this. No king but Jesus. How many of you knew that was the rallying cry of our forefathers at the start of the revolution? Probably not been taught in many of our history books, has it? Where did it come from? Was it really the rallying cry or does it just make for a good sermon kickoff? You know, in the Declaration of Independence, there was like 27 grievances outlined against England. The one most of us are familiar with from our history books was taxation without representation is tyranny. And then I'd say, name another one, and we'd all go, I didn't do that well in history. Well, there was way more that took place before the Declaration of Independence was ever written, as you all know. A group of people that were very involved at that time were the ministers 
They got involved in the politics of the day. A lot of the ministers, a lot of the reverends were preaching across the land and taking part in the protests that were taking place against England concerning the rights of the American colonies. Because besides the taxes, religious freedoms, the reason so many of them came here in the first place were being taken. And there was a man, a minister, named Jonas Clark. And Jonas Clark was a minister in Lexington, as in Lexington and Concord. A little history. How many of you have heard of Lexington? How many of you have ever heard of the Minutemen? All right, we're on a roll. Well, this pastor, this reverend, was the leader of the Minutemen, the militia in Lexington. And as you may remember from your history, a lot of things were taking place around Lexington and Concord. I'm going to read a short paragraph. It's about what was taking place on April 18, 1775. It says this, John Adams and John Hancock were at the home of Reverend Jonas Clark. And the British General Gage, he was pleading with the colonists to lay down their arms and all would be forgiven except for Samuel Adams and John Hancock. They had been such troublemakers, they would not be forgiven. That same night that they were meeting at the house of Reverend Clark is the night that Paul Revere arrived to warn them of the approaching redcoats. The next morning, a British major named Pitcairn, he shouted to the assembled regiment of the militiamen, the Minutemen, and he shouted at them this phrase, Disperse ye villains, lay down your arms in the name of George the Sovereign King of England. And immediately, Reverend Clark, who was the leader of the militia, shouted these words, We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. The immediate response to the challenge brought forth by this high-ranking military officer representing their sovereign king, George. Now this battle cry then spread throughout the colonies. There was a group of people that you may have never heard of and they were called the Committees of Correspondence. In every colony, there were these committees of correspondence. And in some cases, they were linked with the, with the government of the, of the colonies. But in other cases, they were just groups of people that had come together, together. And as you can guess from the title, this committee of correspondence was to transfer the information so they could all be on the same page. And the phrase, there is no king but Jesus, became the rallying cry of the Revolutionary War. And that would go a long ways in explaining why, when you look at the, the uh, Constitution, very first amendment deals with what? Freedom of religion. In our history, the battle cry, and that's the title of my message this morning, simply, No King But King Jesus. Our nation was founded upon that rallying cry. Boy, would it have been a good thing if the people of God in the story would have had that rallying cry and meant it. Boy, would it be a good thing if that was our rallying cry even today. No king but King Jesus. We don't have a king in our government, but in a lot of our personal lives, we have put things in that place that we bow down to. In a sense, we have our little personal kings 
competing with the one and only king, King Jesus. If Israel as a nation would have kept that rallying cry, the history of Israel that we have been studying about would have looked considerably different. I'm going to start with kind of a little bit of a quick review. If you go back, and I want you to look at this map. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when I shared about the dividing of the kingdom, it can get a little confusing because we talked about the nation of Israel, and then when Rehoboam and Jeroboam didn't get along and there was this almost this war between God's own people, they split. The northern kingdom became Israel, and the southern kingdom became Judah. The northern kingdom consisted of ten of the tribes of Israel. The kingdom of Judah was basically Judah with Benjamin folded into it. And they had become separated because they were not getting along. And things had been deteriorating rapidly even after they split. They kept as nations repeatedly turning their back on God. And God was about to take some drastic action where we're at in the story. He was not going to allow this to continue. God had sent, and I believe you talked about some of these last week when Darren was speaking, God had sent nine different prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel to warn them, judgment's coming if you don't get back on track with God. And all nine prophets were basically ignored. The people continued to live any way they wanted to live. And God, all He wanted was them to come back to what is His continuous theme in His upper story. God's upper story message. And some of you have asked me, the upper story, lower story, I keep getting confused, Mike. When I'm talking about the upper story, what is God doing from His perspective? The lower story, what's taking place down here on earth among mankind? In God's upper story, He, he loves His people. The theme of this, his upper story is, I love my people and I want to draw them back to me. And I want them to be a shining light to the world that the world will know that they serve the one true God and it will draw more people to him. And boy, you can imagine this upper story, if you looked on the earth in the lower story, it didn't look anything like that. The lower story was a mess. Israel and Judah absolutely couldn't resist worshiping the gods of these foreign lands. And it was getting worse and worse. So in the scenario that was taking place with Israel and Judah both continually turning back their backs on God, basically God, because He loved His people, He has to do something. He has to do something, and in this case He's going to take drastic action. And He has to do something because the people, when they rejected the one true and living God, they reject God, yes, but they also reject living the life that He has called them to live. And when they quit living the life that he has called them to live and living according to the commands and the precepts and principles he's called them to live by, they quit representing his character in an accurate way. So you can imagine if the, if the nations are looking at Judah and they're looking at the nation of Israel and they're seeing them living just like them. They're seeing them worshiping idols. They're seeing them sacrifice their children in fire at the altars of idols. They see them selling themselves to all kinds of evil acts with other people. They see them breaking every command, and that's God's chosen people. 
understand why God has to do something. And he's going to do it because he loves his people and wants to draw them back into relationship with him. And this is where he's at. Time for drastic action. And it's coming. And it's going to come first to Israel because at this time, Israel was in a state of disarray completely. You know, at the time, there was a time, this time of the kings was 208 years. And during those 208 years, there was 39 different kings. And out of those 39 different kings, only five of them, in 208 years, only five of them followed God. And at this particular time, Judah, their kings were not, excuse me, Israel, their kings were not following God at all. Judah at this time had a king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a godly king. As a matter of fact, the scripture says there had been no other king like Hezekiah and there wasn't going to be another like him. He followed the Lord. So at this time, Israel, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to be disciplined by God. And he's going to use a pagan empire to accomplish his purposes. You know, sometimes when something bad happens, the first thing we do is get mad at the devil. Sometimes what you're doing is you're giving the devil credit for something God is doing in our lives. God will do what it takes to draw us back to him because he loves us. Sometimes his disciplines are painful. Sometimes the consequences of our sin are going to bring about some difficult, difficult times. But the ultimate goal of a good and loving God is always to bring us back to him, back to that place of relationship with him. And that's, believe it or not, what he was trying to do with the nation of Israel, even when he used the the Assyrian Empire, a pagan nation, to come and conquer them and take them. In 2 Kings chapter 17, I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. It's describing the nation. He says this, They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and his seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and my decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. They were as stiff-necked as their fathers. They did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and his covenants that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he had given them. They followed worthless, worthless idols. And then the next phrase really caught my attention. Themselves became worthless. This is God's chosen people. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. 2 Kings 17, verse 18 says, So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His presence. And verse 23 says, So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria. Going back to that phrase, they, they, they worshipped, bowed down to worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless. Did God love His chosen people? Yes. 
Did they become worthless? How did they come become worthless? What did God call them to Himself to do? To glorify Him. To represent Him. To, to, to reveal His character to all those pagan nations that are worshiping all those ridiculous idols. Sacrificing their children. Sexual sin everywhere. He said, I want them to see you worshiping the one true God. And they'll see the blessings that I pour out upon you. They're going to see the joy and the peace that you have in your heart. And they're going to be drawn to you. And ultimately, they're going to be drawn to me, the one true God. That's the purpose. That was his plan. They had become worthless in the sense that they were not revealing that plan and that picture of the God, the true character of God in any way. And he had to intervene. Ultimately, they are taken into exile into Assyria. The king who conquers them is called Sennacherib. That was his name. And then a king named Sargon II is the one. And it tells us in the scriptures, it says that he took 27,000 people out of the nation of Israel and he located them to distant cities scattered through the Assyrian Empire. If you put up the map, please, the next slide, I believe. You can see the darker green at the top was the existing empire for many, many years. And then as they begin, the lighter green is as they're coming down and conquering. And by this time, Egypt is becoming relatively insignificant. And they came down and they conquered. And all that remained of God's chosen people is Judah. And I don't know how well you can see, but my, my little arrow there points to this little tiny spot in all this territory is the nation of Judah. As far as Israel was concerned, the northern kingdom, any semblance of a nation was gone. As a matter of fact, history refers to those ten tribes as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Basically, it seems like they were absorbed into the culture in all the places that they were taken. And you might think, weren't there more than 27,000 people? Yes, but they took all of the people of influence, the educated those that were in positions to have any authority and power, they took them and they dispersed them throughout their empire and all these cities. Basically, they disappeared as they were drawn into the culture of the country that they were being held exiled to. All that's left of God's special people at this time is that little tiny nation of Judah, one tribe with some of the Benjamites involved in it. That's it. Now Judah, Judah at this time, as I mentioned earlier, had a godly king. His name was Hezekiah. And it tells us that Hezekiah came when he took, in, took over uh, ruling, he destroyed all the idols, he took down all the false altars, he destroyed everything and he drew the people back to God. And it says God rewarded him and his kingdom with great success. I'm going to read in 2 Kings 18 and look at the difference between what God's saying to Judah versus what he said to Israel. Hezekiah trusted the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. 
this little nation, this little group of people, surrounded by this Assyrian army, military force that's conquering most of the known world at that time, Judah says, no way. We're not going to cooperate. Well, to get a better picture, if you've read the story, you, you know that at this time, the king of Assyria had sent one of his field commanders. And they were right on the border between what had used to be the Israel and Judah border. Now Israel was gone. And not only were they at the border, the enemy was that close at hand. Attack was imminent. Their desire was to wipe out God's chosen people completely. And in the spirit, you can imagine, Satan's plan was to wipe out God's chosen people completely. And it says this field commander, it's an amazing picture, this field commander comes and they, they come almost right up to the city of Jerusalem. They didn't enter it. They came right up to it and they camped with his army. Now, it doesn't tell us how big his army was for sure, but I can tell you, as you'll know in a minute or two, if you don't already, there was more than 185,000 soldiers. So in all likelihood, it was well over 200,000 soldiers. And he marched them right up to Jerusalem, and now he starts to taunt the people of Judah and taunt King Hezekiah. And the first thing he does is he offers them the opportunity to surrender. And he says, who are you going to count on? You talk about raising up and you're going to resist me. He says, who are you trying to kid? You've got nothing. Oh, that's right. You have this treaty with the Pharaoh from Egypt. It says he's like a broken reed. In other words, he's got nothing to offer you. He says, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the gods that Israel trusted? Look where it got them. And he says, just surrender. And he says, here's what I will let you do. Here's the terms of surrender. You'll get to stay here in your own country for a little while, drinking from your own wells, you know, gleaning from your own fields, until I relocate you to a land, my words now, flowing with milk and honey. Not the case. Exile. So first he offers that, and then no way, they're going there. And then he, then he continues to taunt even further, and now he gets more personal. And he starts saying, you're going to trust Hezekiah? You think the God of Hezekiah is going to protect you? Now they are directly insulting the one true God. He says, this God you guys are serving, this God of Hezekiah, he's going to have the same effect on us as all those other gods did. And look how well that worked out. We've conquered them all. They're all our slaves. Your God's no better than theirs. And Hezekiah still resists. And I love their, their last threat. It kind of ended with these words, choose life or death. Isn't it amazing what the enemy will throw at us when the threat is intensifying? Choose life or death. In other words, surrender so you can live or you're going to die. In reality, it would have been surrender and you're dead and resist and you, might and you will live. Such a lie. What did Hezekiah do? Can you imagine? A couple hundred thousand troops or more. They've just wiped out the northern kingdom that had ten tribes and you're just this little tribe of Judah. 
They even offered in mocking them. He says, we'll give you 2,000 horses. 2,000 horses if you just surrender. Oh yeah, that's right. You probably don't have 2,000 men to even put on them. Just insulting them. And Hezekiah does the only reasonable thing to do. He goes to God. And he goes to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is on the scene. One of the greatest prophets that ever lived. And he goes to, to Isaiah and says, Go to the Lord for me, will you? What are we going to do? It looks hopeless. I'm going to read in 2 Kings 19, verse 20. It says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sends this message back to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayers concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. That was probably good news. You've heard my prayers. Now what are you going to do about it? This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. And I'm going to start reading in 2 Kings 19, verse 32. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield and he will not build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. Now notice, he then says, I will defend this city and I will save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord goes out into the camp of these hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And it says he put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all these dead bodies. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and he stayed there. Good choice. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer cut him down with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. If you read the rest of the story, you'll see his death was prophesied also. Impossible situation. God will fight for his people. God will intervene no matter how hopeless the situation is. To get the glory, to receive the honor, for his own honor, for his own glory, and for the glory and honor of the promises that he had given to David, the covenant that he had made. He says, I will intervene. All you have to do is believe. Hezekiah was a godly man. God heard his prayers. God intervened. Can you imagine this army of hundreds of thousands waking up the next morning after your threats against the God of Israel and you got 185,000 dead bodies laying beside you? He probably quit insulting Hezekiah and the God of Hezekiah quickly and went home. Not a single arrow was shot. No ramp was made to go over the wall. Judah survived. What an amazing victory 
the Lord had won. Can you imagine being Judah and waking up that morning and seeing the remnant disappearing over the hills? Probably wondering what they're going to do with 185,000 bodies. But rejoicing in the victory the Lord had made. Can you imagine if you were in Judah, can you imagine ever turning your back on God again? Can you imagine turning your back on a God who killed 185,000 of the enemy soldiers in one night? Can you imagine turning your back on a God who had rescued you from certain destruction? Well, you all know the answer. Yeah, you can. Hezekiah lived and reigned for 29 years. And when he died, his son Manasseh became king. And he was only 12 years old when he became king. But the Bible goes on to say, and doesn't use his age as an excuse, it says he became as evil as anybody around. He became such an evil king. The, father of, the son of Hezekiah, the greatest king that had ever been king in Judah. His own son Manasseh ends up sacrificing one of his own sons in the fire of an altar to an idol named Moloch. How quickly they turned. And they became totally evil in the sight of the Lord. Quick summary of Manasseh. It says he worshipped foreign gods. He consulted with sorcerers and mediums, a practice prohibited by God. He threw his son in the fire of one of the altars to sacrifice to a pagan god. And the Bible goes on to describe Manasseh as more evil than the foreign nations that God had previously destroyed. And ultimately, Judah is taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. How could they turn so fast and reject God who had so rescued them? When you look at the lower story at that moment, it looks pretty hopeless. Where are God's chosen people? Looks like they're about gone. What about his great upper story plan? Has it been thrown away and destroyed? Well, the truth is, Isaiah the prophet. If you read the book of Isaiah, which is one of the most amazing books in all the Bible, Isaiah not only prophesied what was going to happen in terms of destruction, he also prophesied that God was going to restore. There would come a day of restoration. God's upper story plan was not changed. The lower story looked hopeless, but God's plan was still there. Isaiah in this amazing vision that he has from the Lord, speaks for God to turn the people away from sin and back to himself. He warned Judah. He says, you know what? You're walking in the same footsteps that your sister country Israel walked in. Look what happened to them. The same will happen to you if you don't repent. Unfortunately, nobody listened or very few listened. You know, the threat of being taken into foreign exile didn't have any effect on them. You know, I, I'm not going to go down this road very far, but 
I can't help but when I study this and look through this to try to, to grab a picture and, and make the, the comparison to our own nation in so many ways. In so many ways. You know, everything in the Old Testament and the prophecies of Isaiah pointed to Jesus. We can look back in history and see Jesus. As a nation, where are we at? The voices of warning are out there. We see what's happening all around us. And somehow or other, do we think that God is not involved in what's taking place? Do we somehow think that it's just the result of man and the goodness of man is going to turn this thing around? We're complete fools if we think like that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His plan is the same. And the good news was for Israel, a Judah at this time, when Isaiah would prophesy these things of judgment and destruction that were coming, the remnant that were believers had to be going, but God, what about us? And I take great solace in knowing that we can get so discouraged and look out there and say, what about us? The believers, our world, our, our nation seems to be falling out. What about us? Isaiah prophesied to that remnant that, that God is going to redeem. He's going to bring you back. His plan is not going to be thwarted because of anything that takes place in our lower, lower story, no matter how bad it looks. His upper story was going to come to pass. And his upper story is still unfolding in the world today. The ultimate completion is when Jesus comes back. And he's coming back. It's just as certain as he came through with every promise throughout what we've seen in the history of Israel and we see throughout the Word of God, he is coming back. And we not only have what we're looking at in the Old Testament, we have the advantage of looking back to the cross and knowing that it was accomplished at the cross to redeem us, to bring us back into that relationship with Him. What do we do with it? Judah's pride turned out to be its downfall. All the warning signs, all the words of the prophet, they ignored Him and they continued to do their own thing. But God loved his people too much to let them keep sinning. God uses what we might call horrible things to draw his people back. He will bring them into situations like exile to a foreign country. I think he might even crush an economy now and again to bring his people back. I think he can do whatever he wants to bring his people back. And we need to remember that's his goal. That's his purpose. The remnant. And that's why it's so important that we understand the whole story. That's why it's so important we understand what Jesus did at the cross and why, that we understand that he is coming back. And there is going to be a day of judgment for the whole world. You know, the Assyrians didn't last forever. The Babylonian Empire didn't last forever. The Roman Empire didn't last forever. They all thought they had it all. They were all it. God's plan. They were just really puppets in God's plan. Amazing. Judah had to learn the hard way also. 
But in God's upper story, the plan of redemption never changed. And Isaiah kept speaking that promise as well as the warnings that God will redeem. Probably for us or for me, one of the best parts or the, the greatest prophecies in his whole book of prophecy is in Isaiah 53. And just think, he was prophesying this somewhere around 700 B.C. And in, in Isaiah 53, I'm going to just read a few, few words, a few verses. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the Lord's arm been revealed? He grew up before us like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the prophetic words that were given by Isaiah over 700 years before Christ's birth, prophesying and promising, promising a Messiah to God's chosen people, we, got this, we get to see it looking back. And we know exactly who was being prophesied about. And we know exactly what he accomplished on the cross. You know, when, with Israel and Judah, they were receiving the good news. It was being foretold to them. But for us, we get to look back and see it fulfilled. What should that mean? You know, I said, could Judah possibly ignore God after such an amazing victory? We could look at that and say, geez, that's a no-brainer. How could they? That victory is insignificant compared to the victory that took place on the cross of Calvary. And can we as his people look back at that victory and ignore it? Can we ignore the gift of salvation through Christ? You know, with all of known history pointing to him and us knowing that he came to fulfill that plan. Sadly, even today with the, the advantage of looking back to that greatest event in all of history, many people still reject God. Many people still reject the gift of salvation. Our pride prevents us from receiving what God has offered. Jesus is Savior and Lord. I could say Jesus is Savior and King. He's our Savior and our Lord. He's our Savior because of what He did on the cross. He's our Lord because of the place we esteem Him in our own lives. Is He Lord of your life? Do we live to bring Him honor and glory? I can't imagine God calling a group of people worthless. But that's what he did 
when they turned away from him and worshipped other gods. Is he the king of our life? And can you say, no king but King Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would resonate and ask that question over and over in our minds until we are certain of our answer. Is there another king in our life besides King Jesus? Is he our Savior and our Lord? In love, he died for us. Are we in love, surrendering our life to him? Lord, I thank you for the gift of salvation, and I also thank you for the grace that's extended to us to live our life for glory of God. God, I confess before you that there are times that we do not, I have not lived my life that would demonstrate to the world around me that you are my Savior and my Lord. God, I'm so thankful that you forgive us and that we can walk by your grace and be those ambassadors that you've called us to be. So I pray this morning, Father, if there would be any of us here that have never, first of all, made you Savior, accepted the gift of salvation, through Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, that we would do that today. And I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us those areas of our lives where there might be something else or someone else in that position of lordship in our lives that only you deserve. That we might confess the error of our ways and get back into that place of right relationship with you which has been your upper story plan all along. And Lord, I pray now that you would bless each one as we go our different ways this week. God, I pray that we would truly be salt and light, that we would take every opportunity, every divine appointment, and speak the words of hope and life that the Holy Spirit would give us. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.